This is Comfort Ye My People, Lesson 6, and Joshua. Action! Take it away. Thank you. So, um, we are here on the second to last lesson Ooh. of this course. Um, it's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed doing it with you guys. Uh, we do ask that God would open our eyes tonight to wondrous things in his Torah. Amen. Um, so this week we're talking about light. Um, light and shining. And uh, not the shining. We were singing it the whole time we were studying. Different shining probably my mind. That was not the uh, that was not the song that we were thinking about. Right, right, right. But yeah. Um, but yeah, we're going to Isaiah chapter sixty. So Isaiah sixty um, is uh, is a pretty happy chapter. You know, we've got a couple of these comfort chapters that have been kind of trying to encourage the people of Israel to sort of recover from some of their sadness. But this this chapter is pretty much all good. And we get some really great um, really great hints at some future prophecies as well. So if somebody would read for me Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 22. I got it if nobody's got it. I think you got it. It's mine. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you and the rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord, your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night. They shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I'll bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmaster's righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation, and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, 
that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Whew! Good stuff there. Yeah, um, it is. I see a lot of things that, that uh, get quoted elsewhere. Um, towards the end there, the uh, Perkei Avot quote that verse, Your people, all of them are righteous. Um, we assume, this is where Paul is drawing from, Romans 11, when he says that all Israel shall be saved. Um, but there's also some other interesting imagery here. There's definitely a, a lot of temple imagery, um, especially in correlation to the kingdom of Solomon. In, uh, in the earlier part of the passage, when it says that the, uh, that, um, the ships from Tarshish, uh, or Spain, as, you, as sometimes it's referred to, um, it says the ships of Tarshish, as in the beginning, to bring your sons from afar and silver and their gold with them. So the commentary from Rashi says that, like as in the beginning, meaning in the days of Solomon, that the king had at sea ships of Tarshish, etc. Once in three years, the ships of Tarshish would come. So um, Solomon, they also get a reference there to the Lebanon, talking about the trees from Lebanon. Of course, the um, Hiram, the king of Lebanon, sends trees to build the first temple That's right. um, that Solomon works with. So Solomon, in a sense, is almost like a, an initial taste of this sort of world-to-come existence um, he has a kingdom of peace. He builds the temple. Um, it is the first temple, which is um, traditionally viewed as the not necessarily the most spectacular king, but the one in which God's presence was most powerfully felt. Um, and the, uh, the the kingdom is uh, probably at its largest during Solomon, and their wealth is uh, phenomenal. I mean, unbelievable. Breathtaking. Right. I mean, there are even some people you know who question whether or not it's possible that. You know, Solomon was actually getting, you know, resources and mining and whatnot from the North America. You know, this is this is how like influential this little kingdom was back in uh, in his days. So you kind of get that picture, which is interesting because Solomon, in many ways, has picture as imagery of Messiah. He is his name means uh, uh, Shlomo coming from peace. So he's the kind of the king of peace. Um, he's also uh, he is the son of David. Um, a lot of the uh, prophecies about the son of David um, correlate to him very nicely. Uh, in fact, that the original promise of to David from God that he would have a son who would sit on the throne uh, forever, um, the initial fulfillment of that is obviously Solomon. He's, he's the, he is the son of David. So that imagery is definitely there here as well. So you kind of get like a picture of what that will look like. It's going to be, Israel's going to be, as God says in Deuteronomy, the head and not the tail. Um, God himself is going to dwell with them and we're going to have miraculous levels of wealth and light. And a lot of light. Yes, sir. Uh, six, chapter, uh, chapter 60, verse 6 and 7. <clears throat> Midian, Ephah, Sheba, uh, Kedar, Naboed uh, are all what we would consider modern, <clears throat> modern Arab right. uh, localities. Mm -hmm. So they're uh, to the south, uh, Arabia, Jordan, Iraq are being listed there, hmm. as well as the Sinai. My question is, um, what placement in time do you believe this will be set in? I think it's an interesting question, because it, it seems, well, we're going to get to it later at the end of the lesson, but it seems that there are connections here to the New Jerusalem mm -hmm. in Revelation. However, it is interesting that the kings come into the city, um, as they're bringing their wealth from all over the world, um, Verse 10. Yeah, so it's a question. The question I would have is, are they coming from those places, like, continuously, like, on a regular basis? Or is it more of the, sort of a, um, more of a big picture idea, like, well, you and I are from the United States. We're not actually going to be traveling to the United States to come to the New Jerusalem, except one time. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, once we're there, we're there. I don't know. It's an interesting question. Some of this is fulfilled already, though. Suleiman, magnificent. Built the walls of Jerusalem, verse 10. Yep. Warner shall build up your walls. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take verse 10 and, and put it to Messiah. All right, the sages say that, this, that the Gentiles will, and Ezekiel says, uh, that the, the Messiah will rebuild the temple. And he will rebuild it with the Gentiles. The Gentiles will make that happen. So this could, uh, as, as Rick has said, be sometime in the past, as many of these things could be. But I think... I think you've got a mixture of the days of Messiah and the world. A combo. A combo of both. And also, in verse 11, only one gate is currently closed. 
All the gates are open. That's what it says. All your gates shall be open continuously. All the gates of Jerusalem since 1967 have been open except one. Right. Which ironically enough is the one that is has the open. priest gate. It's <laughs> yeah. the priest gate, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. What's the, what's it called? So it's a beautiful gate? Well, it, it's, it's, beautiful. it's beautiful, but it's in, in Christian theology it's called the golden gate, but it's actually, it's, right. it's the beautiful, or it's vice versa. Yeah, beautiful. beautiful. It was a mistranslation of the Latin, the Hebrew to the Latin, to the English. <laughs> it is the one right now um, it called beautiful, yeah. that is uh, directly across from the Mount of Olives, more or less. The parallels, if, if you're a student of Revelation, the parallels with, with the back end of Revelation 22, 20, uh, 21, 22. Jumping ahead. Sorry. Which is okay, because I do that to you all the but time. The, yes, you do. Uh, but they're extraordinary. And, uh, and the whole idea about the light not needing the sun, the moon, no street lamps is what I always say, right? Um, because God and the and the Lamb are there, right? Um, so, to, to Alex's point, I would those passages I would lean more towards what I call the world to come. It may be, it may not be a chronological whole. This particular prophecy, I think sometimes we tend to get assuming that Scripture works in chronological order, as though somehow every verse next to it is next to it in time. Um, but the sages have, you know, especially the Torah, as we're reading the Torah now, um, clearly make the point, the point over and over again, this is out of chronological order. This right. didn't happen here, it happened earlier. And, it, and actually, sometimes they have proof text in text mm -hmm. where I say, oh, well, see if you can see here is a time marker. Well, obviously, it didn't happen here. It happened way over here and so forth. And it's more about thematic. Um, when the, the scriptures are, are, are structured more thematically than time-wise. So in this particular case, it's clearly a thematic consistency this restoration of Israel, the bringing into the wealth of the nations, this this um, the peace and harmony that they experience, and yet it may not necessarily be one prophecy. It may actually be a, a general building towards that final culmination at the end. Um, but what's interesting about this passage uh, that I that I really like is um, there, the, the several verses here reappear, and also some of the light references. Um, show up in our libretto from Handel's Messiah. It's a great job of stringing some of these together. Um, if somebody has the libretto, um, let's read uh, stanzas 9 through 18, which we had you read in the, in the lesson. Um, especially thinking about, as you read through this, uh, he ties it into Yeshua's birth story, which is quite interesting because gold and frankincense are two of the things that are mentioned uh, in this uh, as the, the nations bringing in to the land of Israel. It happened to be two of the very unusual gifts that the uh, the, the Magi uh, bring to Yeshua when he's born, uh, well, he's a small child. I, I always bring myrrh to, to the young children. Well, yeah, yeah exactly right. You know, burial <laughs> incenses are always a great right. thing to bring right. to small children. That always makes the parents feel good. All right. Yeah, right. Someone got the libretto? Just stanzas 9 through 18. I got it. Okay. Oh, thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, get thee up into the high mountain. O thou that tellest, O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Arise, shine, for your for thy light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall rise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. The people that walk in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Rejoice greatly, 
O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is the righteous Savior, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. So in the libretto, which I think he has such a great job of weaving those passages together, um, you get a couple of important themes. Number one, uh, we do see the light references, a couple of them. Um, number two, you also get uh, multiple references to the nations. We also saw in Isaiah 60 talking about the, the islands will hope to me. Um, and we'll see more about that in the connection to light. Light in this passage, both in the, um, in the Isaiah 60 passage especially, takes on two different versions. Your light has come is, is almost has to be allegorical. I mean, it definitely sounds very symbolic. Um, the way that it's described. The glory of the Lord is shine upon thee. I mean, it's definitely, the language is, is um, definitely sounds very allegorical, imagery, symbolic. But then later on in the passage, we get this, the sun will not shine by day, the moon by night. So there's sort of like this interesting metaphysical, physical balance here where light seems to kind of have a dual nature. And this is actually true in Jewish mystical teachings as well. Um, one of the things, if you, if you pray morning prayers any day of the week, you will pray or kadash, which is translated new light, and it specifically is a prayer asking God to shine a new light on Jerusalem speedily in our days. And it is understood um, by the sages to be referencing this this sort of messianic and or end times light. Uh, basically, it's a it's a it's a it's a shorthand kind of symbolic way of asking God to bring a utopia on earth. Essentially, is what it gets down to. Send them aside. Send them aside. Um, but it's specifically tied to this light, and the sages teach that the light uh, in, the, in the world to come, or in the size days, um, depending on, I can't remember exactly which one now, maybe it's both, depending on who you're talking to, um, the, uh, is actually the light of creation. So uh, the, uh, the, the creation story, there's light before there's a sun or a moon. Well, it's interesting that at the end of the book, there's light without a sun or a moon. Same light. So there's this idea that somehow this this primordial light, as it sometimes is called, um, is transcendent light, is uh, so spectacular, but it's reserved specifically for the righteous, uh, for the end, at the end. And, uh, but what's intriguing about this is, so you've got all this, like, literally physical light in this mystical concept, and yet light is used also quite a bit in a, um, in a, uh, in that symbolic nature in talking about related to good deeds. As an example, this, this passage, Arise of Your Light Has Come, shows up in the, um, the Chai Hashem prayer on Shabbat. In that prayer, it quotes from this passage, and then it follows up by saying that, and above my head will unite his twins the lamp of Torah and the light of uh, the precepts. So this idea of light, in that case, is in relation to um, sort of a, a spiritual light, a, um, uh, uh, an intellectual, metaphysical light of God's commandments. Enlightenment. Enlightenment, right. There's a way to look at it. Yeah. That too, but also, if Messiah was at the beginning, and he was that light, and he is the living Torah, then, you know, we've got a consistency there. I'm so glad you mentioned that, because one passage I did not... For he does, he does. Um, that's a great segue. Um, let's go to John chapter 1. So in John chapter 1, we've read this passage a couple times already, so we won't we don't say read the whole thing, but... Um, as we all know, John chapter 1 is talking about uh, uh, talking about Yeshua, um, but describes him as the Word. The beginning was the Word, right? Um, but what's interesting about it, in that Word, how you're talking about, there's this light gets kind of mixed in with it as part of the imagery. And in John chapter 1, verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming to the world enlightens every man. So this imagery here is this idea, and I think to your point, is tying it strictly to the Torah, directly to the Torah. Yeah. That the light and the Torah are kind of this sort of same picture because at the beginning he's the word, that brings everything to existence. But then, in it was life, and the life was the light of men. Well, life is another word that's used for Torah regularly. You get the tree of life, you get the uh, choose life in Deuteronomy. So, um, uh, this, this idea that light and doing the commandments of God 
fit together, which actually, if you think about it from a, uh, a in the Tehillim and the Psalms, you see that imagery a lot. It makes complete sense. Well, that's what your father said, right? That, that having the Torah brings the enlightenment that brings life. So you, you're not walking in chaos anymore, right? That's right. You're not, you don't, you don't, you're not questioning yourself all the time. What do I do? What do I, well, how do I think? Okay, is it okay? Can I shoot this person or not? Where can I can I take this item or not? Yeah. Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing while I'm here? All of these important questions, whether it's about things you should or shouldn't do, whether it's questions about purpose or belonging, um, without the Torah, without or, or really without any kind of system, but especially without the Torah, which is the ultimate system, uh, the ultimate, uh, the, the true light, um, uh, you could really well describe someone as walking in darkness, as though they're blind, as though they really are just kind of stumbling along, they don't know where they're going, they don't know what they're doing, they don't know why they're here, they don't know what they're supposed to be accomplishing, and we've, you've probably met these people, or you, you, you know, you, you've seen them in the news, or you know, you know, or or, or, or uh, characterized in TV programs or, or in books. This this idea of people who are just sort of aimless, and in uh, in Psalm 19 and whatnot, you get that imagery again, almost like the you know the the light, the Torah is good in, in you know, enlightening the eyes. It's like it gives you some something to see. Where you're going and where you, what you should be doing, yes, sir. And uh, to the point um, in that you've made throughout the lesson, what do we always say about the Torah? That it draws us closer to Hashem, and just like with Moshe, the closer you get to Hashem, the more you begin to radiate light. In his right. case, it was physical because there was a physical closeness, but it, the imagery fits still. You keep the Torah in order to draw closer to Hashem, and therefore now there's light coming from you as right. well as you live that out right another great another great uh transition so here we are um we're staying in the book of john let's go to uh john chapter nine so we had you guys read this one in your portion uh in your, in your lesson but i want to expand what we're reading just a little bit here because the whole story around this quote from yeshua is really quite brilliant so yeshua talks about himself as the light of the world um and he has literally Quite possibly, well, I say literally, not quite possibly, literally, the best, like, word picture uh, um, example he could possibly use to make himself, to put himself into, to demonstrate what that looks like. So, someone read for me John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. There you go. Go ahead. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sent this man or his parents? that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not this, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am, in the, light, I am the light of the world. Yeah, okay, having, two more verses. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. With the saliva. Then he point, uh, anointed man's eyes the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came to see. Him. <clears throat> there is perfect, right? I am the light of the world. Here, let me heal this blind guy so he can see light again. No, worse than that. The first time. Here's a blind guy. Let me make him be able to see by putting mud in his eyes. <laughs> That's a little ironic there. Yes, it is. Um, yeah, it's, I remember it's, it, it's this particular miracle is so fascinating too. There was an interesting documentary that I was seeing about eyes and about eyesight, and there was a gentleman who had been blind for a number of years, and through a complete breakthrough surgery, his sight was restored. But for the past twenty years, he still—it's as if he's still blind because his brain isn't processing like what his eyes are actually yeah, doing yeah. and so everything's thrown off his depth perception is still like awful and all that and it still hasn't recovered yet and oh. it, it just makes a miracle like this just that much more unbelievable because it's it's not just restoring eyesight like we think about you know it's literally restoring like everything the the neural passages right. in his brain like everything that makes that all work to restore that to perfection is like just Unbelievably miraculous. Absolutely, and then oh, go ahead. Well, um, Morgan, your wife, when she was young, was almost completely blind in one eye. We didn't know, and she was four, five, six years old. And I was taking her to the doctor, 
and she could see out of one eye better than perfect, and out of the other one, hardly at all. There's plenty of light, but she's, she just couldn't see. And doctor did the did the tests and everything, and checked her eyes, and said, yeah, and she has almost, you know, 20 billion on the side, 2015 on the side. And the big, the big question was gonna be, is that eye blind because there's a focus problem? Or is that eye blind because the connection from eye to the brain was never built by God? That's scary. Yeah, it was. And he didn't know the answer. I guess we did answer that question, but she sees just fine now. They put a patch on her good eye to see if she could cope with Coke bottle glasses on only one side, and see, and she did. The pathway was there. It just was a focus problem. Huh. But to your point, in this case, this guy's blind from birth, which presumably means that the connection between what you see, what you can see, and the brain wasn't there. Mm -hmm. That's this, astonishing. It's interesting because the passage continues. <clears throat> We talk about the light also, and you're talking about good works being a manifestation of the light. And yet what he does by mixing saliva and mud on Shabbat is viewed as breaking command. In fact, that's exactly what some of the Pharisees came to say. It says this man does not keep the Sabbath, he can't be from God. So he actually broke a didn't break the commandment. He broke the traditional Tradition. understanding of the commandment. Right. And in doing in doing so, healed the man. So we would say, well, so Shabbat, you're only able to heal on Shabbat. No, no, no. It wasn't that healing was, healing could have been considered wrong, but even some uh, medieval sages would have said, no, no, you can heal on Shabbat. Of course you can heal on Shabbat. Uh, but he made mud on Shabbat. Mm -hmm. That's, That's a like, problem. No, no, you, look, you could have healed him. You, you didn't have to mix, mix the mud. You could have healed him anyway, right? Mm -hmm. You have the ability to heal. Why do you have to mix the mud? That's yeah. the point. Although, so it's interesting that there's a separation between keeping the commandment and keeping the tradition, understanding of the commandment. Yeah, that's, that's one thing we talk about Shabbat. Of course, you're, I mean, almost all day long, you're having to make decisions about which virtue to keep more. Because and this is why there were some Jews in the mid, uh, middle, middle, middle Ages that would like, you know, sit in the coal with no light all day long. Some Jews who decided not to go to the bathroom all day long or whatever it might be because of misunderstanding of Shabbat. So the debate on how to keep Shabbat is really, really the, not necessarily debate so much today in Judaism, it's pretty, it's relatively uniform with some exceptions. Um, but in Yeshua's day, I think that there probably was more. And Yeshua's very strongly coming on the side of saying, hey, the, if, the, uh, if the end is doing good, in this case healing this man, um, then the means to get there, he chooses to do it in a way that you and I can do it too. Which I think is interesting. It's that he's making a point. I think he That's exactly right. He didn't say poof there. Yeah, there. Right. He, he's making a point because he clearly believed and taught and actually designed a planet that the Sabbath would be made from man. Not man from the Sabbath. Right. Right. And he constantly buck the traditions or the traditional interpretation right. of the Sabbath just to, to make that point over, over, over again. Right. Um, at least the tradition of his day. I actually don't think he would, but with some exceptions, he would actually fit pretty well, I think, in modern Orthodox Judaism's Shabbat readings, but certainly at the time there was yeah. a lot more debate. Um, yes, sir? I was always, I was really struck as we read through on verse 5, you know, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Like that's a, that's Condition. an interesting timing it's mark. Caveat. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I at the same time, it's really cool to pair that with some of the other verses that we've been reading about. Like we're the light of the world, apparently. Right. Like and how that kind of plays right. off, you know, because we're if we are his disciples, you know, it's it's kind of that idea of if you've seen the student, you've seen the teacher sort of sort of play going on here. Um, Absolutely, and I. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just like how encouraging and also very daunting that is <laughs> that somehow we are, are uh, representations of, of Yeshua as his disciples and that, you know, accordingly we need to, we need to be shining that light. 
Right, right, and that's and that is one thing. The reason why I think Yeshua uses this this imagery of the blind man here because light is not a uh, is not a passive entity. Light enables everyone to see. Light light is an initiator, really. Think about it. Um, light dispels darkness. So light is very active. And uh, when Yeshua uses the light imagery, he then turns around and heals the blind man. You can see the correlation, right? He, this man has now been uh, lost darkness. He now sees. What's fascinating about this is he also sends him to wash in the pool of Shloach, or Salom in most of your translations, which interestingly enough, been, been there, is not that far from Hezekiah's tunnel, which is a, which is a water tunnel that was dug under, by King Hezekiah to enable them to channel water um, into Jerusalem so that they could survive sieges, right? That was the idea. The problem with Jerusalem is there's not like a, there are rivers and things, but they don't necessarily go inside the walls. So you had to have a way to get water. So they built a tunnel underground to, to bring that water up so that way they could um, continue to keep water in the city during any kind of combat. What's fascinating about that is today you can walk in the tunnels and it's literally like a 30, 40 minute walk or so in darkness, at the end of which is a pool and you can see light. So the imagery here is really cool that Yeshua picks this particular pool to send the guy to. I mean, we're literally, the, the, the pool of Shloach is very short distance. Where's the water the come from? It comes from the Gihon. It's the right? Gihon. Where's the Gihon? In, in Eden. Oh, right. This is this is the spring of Eden. So I mean, it's back to the it's back to the yeah. uh, <laughs> the light of Kedem. It's back to the ancient light. Nice. Right. So you get this. You get all this imagery going on. So it's very clear to me that Yeshua, like, kind of subtly, is pointing this pretty dramatic picture here. Um, but to but to Greg's point. It, he is the light of the world. And I think it's interesting as you read, Yeshua calls himself the light of the world, but calls us the light of the world. Let's go to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Got it. You are the light of the world. The city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I mean, that's, so that's what the light is. To see your good works and glorify your Father, right? It's like, uh, I think the image that my, that my wife came up with is almost like being a, being a lantern. You know, the light's in you, and it's coming out, and everyone can see it. The Greek word for shine is lamp up. There we go. That's where we get toward lamp. Lamp, right. You do kind of have both things here, too, because the glory of God is all often described as light, light, and then the works are also described as light. So it's just like, that is, it's amazing. I mean, it's basically the two birds with one stone idea, right? Like, you keep the Torah, you're both glorifying God, but then you're also participating in the light. You're shining light, and it's kind of, both things Which happen when you Moshe keep Torah. Said in Deuteronomy. Right? The nations are going to see. What are they going to see? Your actions. But it's the light that's going to shine. Skip in the head again. Oh, sorry. This, I want to go back to his point, though, is while he's in the world. Because actually, this casts the same thing. It says, give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So it's a reflection. Mm -hmm. As opposed to it being his very presence, it's the reflection of his presence. Mm -hmm. So while he's in the world, he is the light. Mm -hmm. While he's not in the world, we are his reflection. Mm -hmm. right. And it's like moon and sun. You know? Right. I mean, the light from the moon is certainly a whole lot dimmer than the sun, but it does reflect the sun's light. The light is at great distance. I mean, it's like 93 million miles to the sun. It's 130 miles to 130,000 miles to the moon. So the moon's pretty inferior, but it is shining the moon or the sun's light mm -hmm. as a reflection mm -hmm. because the sun's not here. It's 239,000. 239,000. Well, I see. <laughs> <laughs> a lot less. <laughs> but the sun and the moon imagery is perfect because the moon is so oftentimes compared to Israel. Throughout the, the imagery, we talk about like Rosh Kodesh, the, the new moon. We talk about the uh, Kiddush Lavana, seeing the, the sanctification of the moon um, when, the, when, the, when you see like that first little sliver of the moon um, uh, with the Shabbat. Uh, that, that whole idea, it, they're oftentimes tied in to the people of Israel. The people of Israel, especially the kingdom of David, is compared to the moon. It waxes and wanes, right? It rises and falls. So in Isaiah 60, when it says that your moon will not, um, will not fade, 
I think there's an image there, there's a symbolic image there saying that you're not going to uh, wane any longer. This idea that the moon waxes and wanes is compared to Israel in part because it's like there's this, 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 this principle of uh, that Israel comes back, right? So Israel has their periods of time where they suffer, where they sin, they repent, and they grow back again. They become mighty and strong like the moon does. Um, but that image of a brightly shining moon is so beautiful because, as my dad's saying, the moon doesn't have its own light. The moon is bringing that light from something else, but it's reflecting it to the earth. And in the midst of darkness, which is really what we are, we are in the midst of darkness, it is the only real light. I mean, if you've ever been out on a moonless night when there is no moon, um, wow, is that on purpose or is that just... No, it's, it's that. That's right. Wow, it's amazing. So we've got crickets chirping as we're talking to the moon. They must, you know, like like the language. So you see darkness, right? Even on a, 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 a night when there is no moon, stars don't provide a whole lot of light. I mean, they're, they're nice and they're pretty, but they don't really do a whole lot. But you go out on a full moon night, and I remember one time as a kid, you know, you were playing uh, Catch the Flag or something like that, thinking, oh, it's nighttime. It's going to be so great. They won't be able to have, no one will be able to see anyone. It's going to be so much fun to get out there. And it's like practically daytime. <laughs> I mean, it's just unbelievable how bright the moon alone can be. And so that, um, and that's, I think, the, like the imagery that we are called to, right? We are called to this. And, and that question of who's the light, is it God or is it us? Um, it's, it's God in us. You know, God is the light, but when he's in us, he enables us to be the light um, of him. Uh, Psalm 27.1 uh, is a great verse to read, especially in light of this month. Um, if you're praying through um, the uh, Elul passage, this is a psalm you read every single day during the month of Elul. Uh, as we're getting ready for, for uh, Rosh Hashanah. Actually, read all the way up through the end of Sukkot. But um, it's, a, it's a really cool passage. Um, so Psalm 27.1, if someone get that. Read Just read verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Yeah, the, the Lord is my light. So we get this imagery of light um, as, it, as it applies to us. It's coming from God. Uh, in addition, what's interesting too is that in the, in the prophets, um, one thing I didn't really have us read this week, that this, this dual imagery shows up again. So you get in Isaiah 58, Isaiah 58 is a passage about fasting, and, uh, but light shows up multiple times. Um, Isaiah 58, he says to them, talking about a fast, uh, is this not the fast which I choose, this is Isaiah 58 verse 6, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house? And you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. The point of this passage being that, uh, you know, withdrawing from food is meant to be um, an additional act on top of acts of generosity and charity and justice and so forth. And that if you really want your, uh, your fasting to be effective, efficacious, efficacious. Um, then you need to... Uh, it needs to be part of repentance. It needs to be part of obedience to God. So God says, if you do that, if you combine the two, if you, if you serve me, then verse 8, then your light will break out like the dawn, and your recovery will speedily spring forth, and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Um, again, verse 10, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness, and your gloom will become like midday. So this idea that when you are serving God, you are shining that light. Your light is um, able to penetrate the darkness. And, and what were we talking about at the beginning, right? A thick darkness has covered who? The nations. We, as we were saying earlier, talking about the moon, like we are in darkness. We are surrounded by darkness. And we have the opportunity to be that light, to shine that light. In fact, God goes so far as to, depending on who you're reading this as, if it's, uh, if it's, Israel, Isaiah, or Messiah, or all of the above. Isaiah 42, verse 5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I also well, I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. So um, if you get that, that imagery, again, it's this idea of, of 
God making us light to the nations, to shine to others. That's amazing, too, that he references opening the eyes of the blind right there. And I think that's one thing that's so great. It's like how you think about Messiah, and it's like, well, who, who is, uh, is it you? Is it, is it us? Is it Messiah? Is it Messiah in us? And it's like, well, yeah, it's Messiah, and it's Messiah through us. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see him doing that, exactly that very thing. Because um, when you think about uh, a light to the nations, I didn't talk about earlier, there is, there is a, a, there is an emptiness, there is a darkness out there. There, is, there are questions wanting to know, why are we here? What are we doing? Um, and unfortunately, modern, uh, modern um, intellectualism and whatever else has only created more questions rather than answering them. Um, you know, before at least you could have there's the assurance of saying, well, there's a God out there, so there must be at least a being higher than you, and therefore there must be something that's relevant to your life. Your life must be meaningful somehow. Someone put you here on purpose to know you're a complete accident. It was all evolution. We don't even know why you're here. Every, every one of you is going to eventually die, and at some point, the entire human existence is going to be erased because the sun's going to burn out. And we're all going to be killed. And it's like. Well, that's, that's a really happy, cheerful way of looking at the universe. And, boy, do I have hope now. <laughs> so, but that's, but see, that's the, I think we offer the counterbalance to that, right? I mean, here we are getting ready for, um, for these holidays, and it's like we have, we have direction. Even in the time of the year, we have direction. We're praying through the, the prayers through Elul. We're blowing the shofar every day. Why? Because we're building up towards what? We're building up towards meeting the king, mm-hmm. towards repentance, towards forgiveness, and then towards celebration with him in Sukkot. And it's like, I mean, that's a small sliver. It carries you through a few months, right? Two months, basically. And, um, and yet, that gives you purpose and drive and structure. It gives you something more to be happy about. I mean, it's um, how many times, even, in, even on a secular level, do you read about uh, people who, when they finally find something that's bigger than them, so to speak, all of a sudden they feel like their life is meaningful. Mm-hmm. And they and they probably would describe it like light and darkness. Well, yeah, that was what I was just gonna say. Most of the time, when you hear like someone who is depressed or went through a really rough time, they they say, "I was in a dark place." Right. And then mm-hmm. counter, you know, when you talk about somebody who got very excited, like, "Wow, they just lit up!" Right. right. Or, "Oh man, they're just you're just glowing. You have that glow about you." Right. Like we, I think, instinctively describe both like the gloom and the the oppressive state a person can be in without God as darkness like even people who maybe don't even realize that that's what they're sort of subscribing to as they use those phrases it's kind of built into the way that we describe things absolutely I think that's right um, and I think there's a I think it's a good reason for that too um, there's an interesting tradition you mentioned earlier Moses face shining there's a really interesting tradition we mentioned in your in your study guide um, about Adam and Eve so there's a tradition that says that Adam and Eve were originally clothed with light. And, the, and the, there is this weird uh, parallel between the word for skin and the word for light. So it's not, they're actually pronounced the same. They're spelled differently, but um, they're very similar in words. So this idea that they were originally clothed in light, um, which kind of gives you this, um, you know, this utopian, like, ultimate, right? I mean, it's like, so it's one thing to... to to, to symbolically be light, to you actually be light. <laughs> you know, and, and so that idea of it being light, and yet um, that, that light is gone, right? So this, they, they fall, and this light is lost. And, uh, and Moses taps into that at some level with the skin of his face, which is kind of a funny parallel off the light and skin parallel of words. The skin of his face shines because he's so close to God, he literally lights up. Um, in fact, it was such a, such a dramatic image that we see in uh, Michelangelo. He's got like the you know, the horns of light coming out of his head, because uh, it's a little a little sudden mistranslation. But the point being that um, it was physically visible. He was physically changed by spending time with God. Kind of reminds me too of the story of the Exodus. During the three days of darkness, that plague. It says clearly, but the children of Israel had light. light. Mm-hmm. So there would have been a huge contrast then as well. You really have to wonder how light only went in one direction. Because mm. you got the folks that are right on the border. They've got light. 
But it didn't go that way. It only went that way. Yeah. Into the land of Goshen. Juliana's Hebrew names about Karen. Right. The light, the eternal light. It wasn't there a first was a Zion book called right. The Concealed Light? Mm -hmm. It was all about the names of Messiah. Yeah. One of them was light. Right. That was the focus of that book. Yeah. I've heard an argument being made, basically the word for light being enlightenment versus ignorance. The Egyptians were put in a foggy state of mind where they couldn't even think. They were basically like blind and walking around in ignorance, talking to each other in darkness. And the Israelites had enlightenment, clarity of thought. They were able to be, mm -hmm. I guess, functioning. Yeah. Yeah. So that was just a translation I had hmm. once studied. Well, I mean, I could think I could speak from experience um, in the morning. Like if you, uh, you're in the bathroom, you get the lights all on, um, you shut them all off. I don't know, these new halogen lights, I feel like they, they seem even even more dramatic in light and dark. Put the bathroom's lights off, I walk out in my bedroom, and all of a sudden it is I'm pitch blind. black. I can't see anything. Yeah. I can't see anything in front of me. I can't see my own hand if I put it in front of my face. I can see the window pane frame, and that's basically it. You could be walking up a door and not see it at all. And in that moment, you're, I mean, think about it, like the emotional impact on you, right? You're, you might be a little nervous. If you're a child, you're afraid. You don't understand. You you you're uncertain. Yeah. You uh, you lack all of that clarity of thought, like you're saying. Um, in that moment, you're very hesitant. I mean, all of these sure. things. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I think about with uh, so James kind of not talking about light. He's talking about a different image, but he he uses that idea talking about obedience. And he says that like uh, when have doctrine, the correct strong doctrine, so that you're not like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. This idea that. Without God, you end up becoming aimless. You kind of have, you don't really know where you're going, and you, you change your mind very easily, and um, things become inconsistent. And, uh, it becomes very difficult. I mean, this is, this is something that, um, there's a reason why non-religious uh, uh, people, um, there are so many different ethical systems, because there's such a struggle to come up with something that makes sense outside of religion that is consistent, that acts like life, that you can always bank on. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why, um, to uh, some of your point earlier, our actions are compared to light because they provide that. Did you have a comment, sir? Oh. So let's go to First John chapter 1. And I also want to emphasize, you know, if there's light, there has to be a contrast to compare it to. In this world, we have the law of opposites. If there's a head, there's a tail. If there's tall, there's short. If there's light, there's darkness. So we see this light being represented of Jerusalem, but outside the city walls is where, you know, the adulterers, the thieves, mm -hmm. a lot. so in the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mm -hmm. Also, mm -hmm. they're representative of people who enjoys the dark and flee from the light and can't stand in the people who walk in right. enlightenment are, mm -hmm. I guess, beacons of this light. Right, yeah, so, absolutely. I'm point out that there's almost just as much references to the darkness as opposed to the light. In scripture, it definitely is. There definitely are references to darkness to, uh, in the in the in the scriptures. This idea, of, like you said, especially people who walk choose to walk in darkness. Let's look at that one. One of those passages. It's First uh, John chapter one. Um, let's look at verses five through nine. Someone have that? Okay. Go ahead. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Yeshua, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we have, say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, for those of you who may have grown up in the church, and we have DC Talk playing together right now. Want to be in the light, if you are in the light, shine GT like the stars in the heavens. Yeah, that's the other one. Um, but the point being that this, uh, this passage is very famous. Um, but this, uh, this imagery throughout the book of 1 John, the idea of walking with God, fellowship with God, being like God, it's it's the, the principal one is love, but it's about keeping the commandments. It's not. It makes it very clear the righteous pe those who are with God are righteous. 
Not they are called righteous, not they are given righteousness, but they do righteous things because God does righteous things. And as it says here, you know, in him, you know, it, God is light. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie to the practice of truth. How can you mix them, right? You can't, light and darkness don't mix. They, they separate inherently. So you can't say, well, I'm going to, you know, run counter to God, but I'm really with God. That doesn't work. I was watching a TV show recently, um, and, you know, this is, character is a little schizophrenic, he's kind of overly emotional, whatever else, and um, so we know in one side story that he's uh, he's got a mistress somewhere else, but then he's going through some emotional time, and he, he looks at his wife and tells her, it's like, like, my love for you will always, and he kind of loses the train of thought. But you're watching, you're going like, what a hypocrite. I mean, come on. <laughs> Unbelievable. But it's like this, but that's the idea. Same with God. Like, you can't, you can't play both sides. You can't be like, well, I'm with God, but I, but I don't do what God does. I, I try to dishonor him and, and make him upset on a regular basis. That doesn't really flow together. Yes, sir. Well, again, I'm wanting to point out this contrast. So, it, you know, God is light and in him is no darkness. Then go into Isaiah 45, 7. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, Adonai, do these things. And again, um, this brings me back toward the Torah. Um, was it Shaul who was stating, you know, before the law, there were, I mean, without the law, with law, you're judged by the law, but without it, you perish. And I wouldn't have not known sin, but mm -hmm. the law, the instructions revealed that to me. Mm -hmm. And again, it's this light which kind of highlights um, mm -hmm. that, and we see um, Psalms 119, um, done with the, um, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, so that right. I might hide it, um, so I do not sin against Adonai. Right. And again, it's this contrast of the Lord being the light, but as a result, there has to be something to compare to. He creates light, uh, or he is light, and as a result, there must be a darkness. If there's a Torah instruction to highlight your faults, then there has mm -hmm. to be the faults there um, to be underlined. Right, right, right. But without the light, you don't recognize that there's darkness there. At the same time, it doesn't mean that it's not darkness. Right, and that's the same. By the law, if you live it, you're judged by it, but without it, you perish. Right. You still perish, right. because it, even if it's not there to highlight it, the end yeah, is... Don't shine the light on me, I can't see. <laughs> yeah, okay, there it is, light's gone. Can you see now? <laughs> yeah. I, I've always really liked the that Kabbalistic kind of idea of like the, you know, the klipa or like the shell or the husks that are right, around right, the, right. the sparks and stuff because it sort of reminds me of passages like this where it pairs the light with have one being cleansed by the blood of Yeshua. Like it's like you through forgiveness and through His sacrifice, you you've been cleansed. Therefore, the light can shine, and that's kind of the same idea in Hasidus. Is it's like you have this spark, this light that can't be shining if you're sinning because there's all these husks that Chunks. form around it. Chunks. Yeah, yeah. and, and it, it'll keep the light from shining. And right. you know, so the it idea is you, you sanctify this world and, and you know, through good deeds, you know, keeping the Torah, then you're you're letting that light shine and you're kind of tearing away the, the klipa or the, the husks, so to speak. And so I, I, I think that that imagery still bears itself out in Scripture, just recognizing that, as it says in this passage, that it is the blood of Yeshua that helps to clear away that that sin so that the light can shine. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, specifically yeah, the message also to Yeshua, which is repentance, because where I think it's Psalms, um, those who disregard the Torah, even their prayer is an abomination to me, without repentance, that's the first thing that you must have in order for your prayers to ascend. Yeah. to the Holy One, blessed be His name. So again, that I think is the message um, that Yeshua was preaching mm -hmm. to Shuba, repentance. Amen. Well, yeah. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with Isaiah 58, right? With the fasting. It's like you can't put on airs and do um, the superficial things of the faith and not live the core of it. And that was Yeshua's point over and over again to the, the hypocrites in His day, saying, look, you guys are doing great tithing and tithing things you don't even need to tithe. Way to go. But, I mean, that's not a bad thing. But, you, uh, but you're but you missing the big picture. You know, you're, you're missing taking care of the widow. So why would you, you know, I mean, what good is it for you to do, go above and beyond things that don't really matter if you're not keeping what God explicitly said? 
And, uh, and so that, yeah, but I think to, to Greg's point too, talking about the Hasidic idea, this gathering of sparks, uh, ju- ju- this Hasidic Judaism teaches this principle that uh, there's something um, spiritual or divine kind of all over the place, and you're trying to find those, trying to gather them up. And in a sense, the term that they use a lot is preparing the world, tikkun olam. So it kind of comes this idea of like redeeming this world, doing something here. And I like that idea of like trying to reveal the light. Mm-hmm. You know, it's trying to like, it's there. Um, God created this world and he created it good. And it's like, so we're out there trying to find that goodness and try to expose it to other people. And we do it by keeping the, the mitzvot. Um, I mean, I think about the, uh, uh, it's like uh, um, wine, I think, it, I think it, isn't it wine that um, lightens the man's face? Or is it makes yeah, it? Cleanses man's, man's heart and bread that lightens the face of man. This idea of, uh, you know, food and drink is a good thing. Obviously, it can be overused and it can be made to a bad thing. And yet, if we thank God before we eat, if we eat an appropriate amount, if we bless God after we're done, you know, if we eat the only the things he told us to eat, then you can use this and suddenly elevate it and make it something that you're, you're so thankful for, it becomes a spiritual experience. Well, you, you mentioned Isaiah 58 several times, and you referenced the, the fasting portion, but it's right after that that we do every Shabbat. If you keep the Shabbat, if you turn your feet from your own pleasure, if you don't speak your words, but mine and so on, um, it, it's to your point that we're doing things. We're doing what he said to do. I mean, keeping the Sabbath is, is most often repeated than I think any other phrase in the Word of God. Hmm. So to your point, it's a doing thing. It's a doing it's, thing. A, it's an obedience thing. Like light is active. There is, yeah. Um, and you, uh, I think you you mentioned earlier, Alex, this 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 contrast of light and darkness inside and outside of Jerusalem. So we get the end of this Isaiah passage, and we get this beautiful picture of the New Jerusalem, talking about there would be no darkness there. And then, but the contrast is definitely to um, Yeshua. One of his parables, he talks about this idea that the the ones who cast out, they're cast out into outer darkness. Um, which is an interesting phrase um, to use, speaking, uh, speaking of darkness. In Isaiah 66, uh, the image quite clearly is it's tied to death. Um, you know, I think in, in, uh, in, um, in Christian teaching, this, this whole focus on hell, um, not that that's not necessarily got some validity to it at some level, but I think it sometimes misses a little bit of, of the uh, important imagery there. I mean, it's death, right? It's not, it's not like uh, we're going to go party where it's hot, you know, it's... And no, I'm sorry, you're dead, you're rotting, and things are on fire. You know, it's pretty awful. Um, that's kind of the image from Isaiah 66. And so this death and darkness kind of kind of combine for the outside of the city. But the inside of the city is quite the contrast. So let's go to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to finally get to what my father-in-law mentioned about 45 minutes ago. Because he, you know, I think he knew where we were going for some reason. <laughs> um, and uh, Revelation 21 is talking about the New Jerusalem. Um, we've read this passage uh, briefly before. We're going to read it again now because it just ties in so well with this week's Haftarah. Um, so we can someone read Revelation 21, verse 22 through 22, verse 5. Actually, no, we're going to go verse 6. Verse 7. Read through verse 7. 21, 22. <clears throat> 22 through 22, verse 7. Yeah. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. For its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water the, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life and its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and and of the Lamb will be in it. For his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. 
and night will be no more. They will need no light, no light or of they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and of your brothers the prophet and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So this, this passage, um, beautiful, beautiful passage you're talking about the world to come. What's interesting is we talked about it a few weeks ago. Um, this kind of oddity that the New Jerusalem is described as the bride of the Lamb, here described as the bride of the Lamb, which only really makes sense as to how they could both be true if you think about it in the sense that a city, a capital city in particular, and a people are kind of equivalent, really. Sort of the same thing. Um, especially in the ancient times, this idea of the, the city-state, the, the metropolis, so to speak. Um, even today we use this term. If you talk about... Um, a decision that's being made by the country of France, sometimes you refer to it as Paris. Talk about, you know, the London has decided, you know, the, the, the gridlock in Washington. We're not talking about actual cars stopped in Washington. Although, Although it's, it's probably true. Bad there, yeah. yeah. But we're talking about Washington as a representative of the people who live there. So this imagery is something we, we have today as well. And so it's not unusual, that, um, so it's not, I think, out of place to see that this, this, you know, in Isaiah 60, it says, you will be called the Zion of God, the city of God. You, you, the people, right? Because you will be the city. The city is nothing without the people. At the same time, in this case, the city is pretty awesome that the people live in. And there's this sort of this, di this blend of the people and the city as one. So isn't it fascinating that throughout the city just keeps mentioning benefits for the nations? Mm. It says, the nations will walk by its light. It says the tree, the tree of life, right? Yeah, the healing of the, for the nations, for the healing of the nations. The nations will bring the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. This this idea was what we talked about last week as well. God always had a big picture, global picture in mind um, throughout history. He chose people that he knew would be resilient, that would stand out, that would be stubborn. Um, they would be, you know, they had chutzpah, right? He picked Abraham's descendants for a reason. Um, and then he miraculously enough included some of us in that group too um, because he wants to bring the rest of the nations to himself. And uh, you mentioned earlier Deuteronomy 4. Um, we had this read in that passage. Let's read it now. Um, Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. Okay. Go ahead. Say, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there? that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this Torah that I set before you today. And the thing that's crazy is that this happened, not necessarily in, in an explicit form, although it probably did, but I mean, uh, actually today it's kind of funny, there, there are South Koreans studying Talmud because they want to be successful like the Jews. I think that's hilarious. Mm -hmm. um, uh, strictly for like financial success. They're just like, hey, these people, everything they touch turns to gold. I want to be like them too. Um, but actually, if you think about it, Western society is completely built on the Torah. Oh, yeah. I mean, unbelievable. The whole principles of justice and equal weights and measures, Simple government powers. system, uh, even, even to the point of uh, the justice system, uh, to the point of uh, even social justice. So we talk about today in, in, our, in our society this idea of trying to take care of the poor. Well, the whole concept behind that practically comes from this. Um, this book, my wife and I are reading, the, the, I think it's 12 Rules for Life, written by Dr. Jordan Pearson. He's a secular psychologist. But he points out like this that the, the, one of the great benefits of Christianity was, um, and Christianity ultimately, in my, in my view, is simply promulgating the, the mitzvot that God had created. Unfortunately, not all of them, but a sufficient number of them, um, a, a number of them. 
uh, he con- comments that Christianity completely changed ancient society. I mean, think about it. He's like, once upon a time, the Romans decided that it was okay that, well, for our slaves, the lions, we'll watch them kill each other. This is entertainment. Kill thankfully, thankfully, we got to a stage after that with the influence of Christianity where we realized that's not a nice thing to do. Let's not do that anymore. Um, there are a number of things that ancient societies, child sacrifice, you know, murdering the old elderly, which unfortunately is making a comeback. But, I mean, there's enough different things that the religion that was based on the Bible, that was ultimately based on the Torah, completely changed. It made, because it was wisdom, even to the nations, even to the, to the pagans, to the Gentiles. So um, we see that impact that it affected on them. What's amazing about this whole passage is how, how do we tie these together, right? So that we got this end times picture of light, no sun, no moon. God's going to be the light for us. And this present day idea of walking in the light, being that light, bringing, bringing that close together. The sages actually imply that the latter is dependent on the former. Um, I'm sorry, the former is dependent on the latter. Uh, if you go into Isaiah 60, in the very end of our passage of Haftar we started with, the very last passage, or last verse, I should say, or second to last verse, uh, yeah, last verse, sorry, last verse. It says, the, um, I am the Lord, in its time I will hasten it. It's the very last sentence, uh, phrase in Isaiah 60, verse 22. And the Rashi says, in its time I will hasten it. If they are worthy, I will hasten it. If they are not worthy, it will be in its time. Um, it is coming. God's going to, uh, to bring this, this heaven on earth um, at the right time. But um, Paul talks about it too, hastening the coming of Messiah. This idea that um, if we live that light now... Um, Somehow, we can you know, the coming of change everything, and that light will ultimately um, become subsumed by His light, and uh, and change the world. Amen. Uh, any final comments? Alrighty, Dad, I'd like you to pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have given us an opportunity to see the light. We ask that you might teach us. Uh, how it is that we can be better vessels of that light so that your glory might shine in the world around us. Father, we pray that our light, uh, your light through us, might uh, be that which hastens the coming of Messiah. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.